Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 400 CTOs who share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insights into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. Sestrify is the agile SaaS procurement solution for progressive tech companies. Value proposition is reducing your SaaS spend and save time to let you focus on the essentials. Sestrify's SaaS experts negotiate with SaaS vendors such as Google, Miro, Asana, Salesforce or others the best conditions for existing contracts as well as for upcoming renewals. My company OMR is a customer of Sestrify and saves us many hours of work and reduces the SAS spend significantly, for instance. Other large customers to mention are Gorillas, Rantastic, West Wing or Emma. Sestrify's promise is they save you more money than they cost. Special offer, which is only valid until the end of the year, is a 50% discount for the first three months and you can claim it on sastrify.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and the topic for today is APIs in the year 2021. Um, and my guest for that is like the best guest I could get for that topic. It's Marco Palladino, and he's the CTO of Kong. And from my perspective, Kong is a, is a very unusual unicorn. Uh, so they actually raised more than 100 million. They had the vision that API is going to be a very, very big topic, which it also became. And just built a gateway for that. And that sounds very simple, but I know that it's not. So welcome, Marco. Maybe you can can tell us a bit more about uh, how you got to that idea. Yes, and thanks for having me here and, and welcome uh, everybody to this, uh, to this podcast. Yeah, so, you know, you see me and my co-founder, Augusto Marietti, more than a decade ago, had this vision that APIs would rule the world and you know now it's clear that APIs are indeed going to rule the world. Everything is API powered. We're seeing the connections, API connections, powering essentially our digital experiences from banking to entertainment to all sorts of things. But 10 years ago, that was not obvious. It was just beginning with the Facebook API, the Google API, and Augusta and I had the vision that if the world was going to be powered by APIs, then this new world would need an API marketplace so that developers could build APIs and sell them and other developers could consume them. So we were building the assembly line of APIs, essentially, the assembly line of software. And when we first moved to the US, we started MashShape, which was an API marketplace. You know, we thought that APIs would trigger a new industrial revolution. We thought that APIs would be the backbone of everything that anybody would be creating in the world. And that's why we came here and we built the API marketplace. Then, of course, um, as you know, that was the beginning of our journey, but it evolved into Kong as a result of a pivot. So you 
sold Meshape as far as I know, um, and um, at the same time came up with Kong, um, which is in a way a load balancer for APIs, right? With uh, authentication and rate limiting and everything uh, in front, right? I think Meshape was probably six years ahead of its time. And you know how they say, if you're right at the wrong time, you're still wrong. <laughs> and so and so we built Mashape, but I think it was a little bit too early. So we were able to capture a good sized developer community, but we were not able to find a good business model that was a scaling and growing. And as you know, that's a problem, right? We raised money on the marketplace, but we needed to accelerate our revenue growth. And once we realized in 2015 that that was not possible, you know, after five years working on the marketplace, we were burned out. You know, we wanted to do something else at that point. We took the most valuable thing we had built, the API gateway that we built for ourselves, and we open sourced it. Meshape, the product, the marketplace had an ape, Mesh ape, an ape, a gorilla logo. And what's the most mm -hmm. famous gorilla in the world? King Kong. And that's why we call it Kong when we open sourced our technology. You see, we built Kong for ourselves, for the marketplace, because there was nothing like it in the world. We needed something that could run uh, in a decentralized way. We needed a gateway that could run on containers. We needed a gateway that was fast and performant and extensible. And none of those things existed back then. Most API gateways at the time were coming from the SOA SOAP world. And so when we built Kong for ourselves and then we open sourced it, well, it turns out that what, what we built for ourselves is, it, is it, it was what everybody else also needed. And so we saw an incredible adoption of Kong since day one. Kong's adoption was so big and so great that people wanted to pay us so that we could build enterprise features and provide them with support. And we realized that perhaps that was something we should have focused on. And so we divested the marketplace product to another company and we fully focused on Kong. As a matter of fact, in 2017, Mashape Inc., the company name, also got uh, renamed to Kong Inc. So essentially all in on Kong. Today, Kong, it's much more than an API gateway. You know, APIs are going to be powering the world. They are powering the world, but there is different use cases for APIs. And so we started with a gateway Today, we also work in the service mesh landscape, in the security landscape for APIs, in the analytics landscape, and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a much bigger organization which we, with many more products. But Kong Gateway was the original one. And uh, does your product now um, feature a lot of very popular APIs that the world knows? So for example, I was, I was once playing with the GitHub API and somehow ran into rate limits. And I found it having very, very smart rate limits. Um, so they somehow stick it to my account, but somehow also to other details. So I think my 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 network, my my IP address in, in my company and so on. It was very, very clever that rate limiting. And I, I just thought, okay, what what kind of a, a gateway is behind that potentially? <laughs> is it yours or yeah, so you see, for every feature that we built in the gateway, you know, we put heart and soul into making sure we built the best technology out there. So the rate limiting capabilities, the security capabilities, for us, were not just features, but you know, we we really made sure that we were building something great, uh, something that was secure by default, performant by default. There is there was a lot of thought process that goes into every single bit that 
at the end of the day, you know, runs Kong. And, um, and, and that, I think that was also key for Kong to succeed. Today, Kong is the most popular open source API gateway in the world, all right? So we have more than 3 million instances running all over the world, 300 million plus downloads. Um, everybody knows Kong and everybody runs Kong. And I think that part of it was also that passion into creating the best technology out there. Understood. And um, what would you say, like, where's the, the API space right now? I mean, is it is it still the beginning or are we all already there yet? Is it because I, like, I think when I, when I look at the, I also thought like there must be space for a marketplace. There's rapid API as a marketplace and they're somehow market leading. Um, but when I, when I browse, when I browse the platform, I still get the impression that it's not very, very much of a topic yet. Right. Um, what, what is your, how do you, do you think, where, where do we stand in, in terms of API adoption? How, how mature is that market yet? You see, APIs, it's undeniable. Today, they are running the world. You know, every time we do any activity on our mobile phones, every time we use any website, at the end of the day, even our IoT devices and even our cars, at the end of the day, there is an API that powers that connection. APIs are the new nervous system of the digital world, right? So that, that's happening right now. But we are still in the beginning. There are so many more applications and software that have not been converted into being modernized in microservices and therefore they're still running in a large monolith and large monoliths are not that good when we try to innovate fast we try to ship features fast you know there are big elephants that's very hard to move they're heavyweight and so as as those applications also move to microservices while in the meanwhile even new new ones are going to ship and come out you know we're just at the beginning this market is going to be 50x, 100x bigger in the next in the next decade, and and I'm and you know and that of course makes me very happy uh, because of the work that we're doing with Kong. It means that we are positioned in a macro trend that's growing; it's not shrinking. Mm -hmm. And and what are your predictions for the next years? What will happen in the API space? Yeah, so you see, APIs started in the early days as a way for us to connect our monolithic applications with mobile. You know, the API as we know it, started with a mobile revolution. Everybody needed mobile applications. Everybody needed a mobile experience. And so how do you connect a mobile app with your monolith in 2008, 2009? You do it with an API, an API at the edge. And that's how traditional API management was started. It was to enable a life cycle at the edge to consume those APIs. But now APIs are not just at the edge. Our monoliths also got transitioned into microservices because they provide so many more benefits uh, when it comes to speed and agility and velocity. And microservices essentially are decoupled and distributed applications. How do they communicate with each other? Internal APIs. So APIs are not just at the edge anymore. They are internally within our applications themselves. That triggers an exponential rate of API usage within the applications themselves. For every API request at the edge, there are 50, hundreds, 150 you know, requests that are happening internally to power that one request at the edge. So APIs have transitioned from being an edge concern, an external concern. In that use case, it's still there. It's still very important. But there is a new use case, which is the internal use case with microservices and with our team. So APIs are essentially the life and blood 
um, of every application we're building. Now, in order to build uh, a proper API infrastructure, building the API itself is just you know, 30% of the job. We have to secure that API. We have to make sure that it's observable. We need to make sure that we can select which APIs we want to transform or integrate together and then offer them to another team or at the edge to a third-party developer. This API infrastructure, it is very complex to build. And this is why companies like Kong exist, right? And, and not just Kong, it's a, there is a, Kong competes with other players in the industry that are, uh, that are providing uh, these API middleware technology, if you wish. But the vision for Kong and, and the vision that we have of this API world is that these are not isolated API concerns. So API connectivity at the edge and API connectivity inside of the apps, they're not siloed concerns, but they are part of the same puzzle. How do we manage connectivity within our organization? And so I believe that the future of API is full stack. APIs are going to be going across different connectivity use cases at the edge, across the apps, inside of the apps. And that is the full stack connectivity that we need to provide to the teams. To secure our APIs, we must remove the concept of trust. So the future of APIs is going to be a future built around zero trust, a future where trust disappears from our systems because trust is exploitable. And these API connectivity platforms that are full stack can enforce, like Kong, can enforce zero trust across the board. Um, API connectivity is going to be built around service mesh. Service mesh is a new pattern that has started in 2017 that essentially allows us to provide the network management functions on the infrastructure layer without having our application teams to build it for us. Uh, the application teams become consumers of API security, API observability, API monitoring. They stop being the builders of that like they used to do. So API is going to be baked even more so into the infrastructural layer in such a way that's available like electricity. On demand, always on, always reliable. Whenever somebody builds anything in the organization, they plug it in like electricity and it just it's just there, right? And so this is the vision that we have to make it to make essentially API connectivity reliable like electricity is, you know, and and, and that and that is really uh, where the world is going. That's that's a bold vision. <laughs> and I guess we're not fully there yet, right? <laughs> I mean, in terms of your product, it's obviously good, but um like the world out there, like there, there's so many unreliable APIs uh, that that haven't yet understood what what the value of of an API is, right? And I think I saw, I, I read the sentence. I think you you said that that slow is the new down, and in a way that that happens in a lot of APIs, right? They are like constantly slow, uh, aka down. In a distributed and decoupled world powered by APIs there is much more back and forth of requests within our applications, you know, compared to the monolith. The monolith was running functions in, in the underlying code base, in the same code base, whereas with microservices, we're running them with API requests. So we are replacing the reliability of the CPU with the unreliability of the network. The network, as we know, is not secure. It's not fast. It goes down all the time, you know. Uh, and so how do we make it fast? How do we make it secure? And, and this is uh, what you know, we're working on. But the velocity and performance of those API requests becomes critical now. In the monolith, when the monolith was down, the application was down. But in microservices, when the microservices are slow, the application is down. Slow is the new down. Microservices have to be fast and performance has to be a key requirement 
for everything that we do in order to deliver the best user experience to the to the end users to the customers okay mm, uh, like stepping a little step back to the to the to the predictions in the api space what do you think about apis as a product so i mean there are like a couple of companies that actually monetize a their apis or are just like pure api companies um, and do api productizations um, is that also like your goal to make that easier yes of course i mean that really was the vision for my shape uh, you know the 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 shape vision that we started 10 years ago it's sort of coming back into kong um, apis as a product I mean, when we look at Stripe, we look at Twilio, we look at these type of companies, API is the product. It's all powered by APIs and they sell to developers, you know, ask your developer, right? Uh, they sell to your developer to, uh, to be able to integrate these APIs. And we're going to be seeing a lot more of these type of organizations coming out. And API as a product also means that API must have a product lifecycle. And I think that this is the biggest switch that people have to think of when they think of APIs. You know, APIs, it's not just a JSON response. APIs is a product. Like, therefore, like every other product, it needs to have a life cycle to create new versions, to upgrade the users, to decommission older versions, to document them, to secure them, and so on and so forth, like any other product, right? So we're going to have different versions of that API, and how are we going to be enabling users to consume it, to discover it, to pay for it, All of that has to be taken care of. And, and you know, obviously this is just a natural evolution of that original vision that essentially APIs are going to be triggering a new industrial revolution. Everything is going to be API powered. There is no doubt about that. The thing that has changed with APIs is that APIs are not going to be just RESTful. There's going to be different types of APIs depending on the use case. So we're seeing an emergence of GraphQL APIs at the edge because they provide better performance and they reduce the bandwidth. Uh, we're going to be seeing RPC protocols like gRPC. We're going to be seeing event-based microservices that are powered not just by service-to-service -service requests, the way we would think of an API, but they're powered by asynchronous events that are being shared by a log collector like Kafka, for example, from one microservice to another in a consumer-subscriber type of model. So when we think of APIs, I guess we need to include all of this uh, and not just the traditional RESTful API that we, you know, the world popularized 10 years ago. Okay. So that means that <clears throat> I saw beforehand on your, on your LinkedIn that you're actually on the board of open API, as far as I see. Um, that mean, that is like popular for REST APIs. And what do, what do you think about GraphQL? Do you, on, and what does Kong think about GraphQL? Does it also understand that uh, on a very deep level? Or I guess it does. Um, how does that work? Or how deep does Kong actually look into such, such APIs? Kong, uh, Kong, you know, we are an organization that listens to the users, the community, and the customers. You know, we have over 400 plus enterprise customers like Nasdaq, uh, Mastercard, Volvo, Volkswagen, you know, Brooklaus, Blue Shield, Verifone, Orange, you know, and so on and so forth. And we listen to what they're doing and we try to provide the right technology for what they're building. And of course, Kong Today supports, as a result of that, Kong Today supports GraphQL, traditional HTTP, gRPC, Kafka, even serverless like Lambdas or uh, Google Cloud Functions, you know, the serverless um, uh, 
function as a service providers. Uh, we, we do support all of these and we integrate all of them as part of our middleware because this is what the developers want. The developers do not want to use REST for every use case. They're going to be using it for a lot of use cases, but not for every use case. And for others, there's going to be other transports and other protocols that we need to support. Just yesterday, we added support for UDP in addition to traditional TCP-based uh, protocols. So we, we are working with the developers to support them in pretty much everything that they want to do. I mean, this is why Kong exists in the first place. So all of this is part of the product today. Okay, interesting. Um, and um, you you started it off as open source and it is still open source. So it has actually 30K stars on GitHub or something. So uh, congratulations to that one. Like, is it an open core model these days or how does it work? Kong started as a, an open source project and today a significant part of our investment is uh, in open source still. You know, we, we believe that open source is one of the best ways to build software because open source bakes in the feedback loop with the users much early on in the product journey, which allows us to much early on understand what people want and then build it the right way. Of course, open source, it's free to use, but it's not free to build. And uh, we need that. We need the to, uh, you know, have our revenue stream. And our revenue stream comes from the enterprise platform that we've built on top of the open source project. Uh, Kong Gateway, by the way, it's only one of the open source projects that we have. Uh, the other ones are Cuma for Service Mesh, uh, which has been donated to the CNCF, as well as Insomnia uh, for API design and testing, um, which is also open source. So everything that we do as an open source foundation really on open source DNA. And then on top of these open source building blocks, we build an enterprise platform that allows us to then, you know, get a revenue stream that we can reinvest in the open source projects themselves. Um, and, and, and I believe that so far, you know, one of the hardest things with open source business models is setting the right expectations. Because once you build something open source, you cannot move it into enterprise again. And, and, you know, and setting the expectation with the community is always important because missing that expectation creates a loss of trust with the community. And so with Kong, I believe we did a very good job early on to set the right expectation of what would be open source. And there is a lot of that is open source and what would be enterprise. And so far, we haven't broken that promise, which means that we are seeing not only open source adoption because people are happy, but also enterprise adoption because everybody knows what to expect from the enterprise version. So it's a very healthy, healthy motion. And I'll tell you something else. Open source companies like Kong, they are very unique in this landscape. When you think about open source 20 years ago, the only successful use case, the only successful company was Red Hat. That was the only open source company that was able to be successful. But that has been changing a lot. Uh, we're seeing companies like Kong, but also Elastic, companies like uh, Confluent, Kafka, you know, built on top of open source foundations that are very, very successful in the world. So open source really is eating, eating software, essentially. You know, Mark Andreessen said software eats the world, but open source eats software. It's just a much better way to build software. And I guess like these days, it's also maybe a bit easier to... Um to have the right level of quality if you actually open source your stuff, right? Uh, even if you still do a lot of the work on your own, I guess it's like pretty much pretty hard for, for you guys as well to also find uh, like very active contributors to your, to your open source project. But 
<coughs> the fact that you open source it helps to 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 produce the right level of quality, right? You know, it's it's a little bit of a chicken egg. You don't have a successful open source project if that open source project it is not written the right way. So in order to capture that adoption open source has to be written the right way because otherwise people are not going to use it. So successful open source is the one that we're seeing that is written the right way, that is um, that has adoption, that has contributors, that has features being built. Because if that open source project didn't do any of those things, by definition, it wouldn't be successful. So every time, every time we see a successful open source project, you know, there's always exceptions. But for the most part, it means that the maintainers of that project have done something very right in order for them to, to grow to that level. You know, with closed source projects, you don't have that feedback loop. You have a much less usage of the product uh, because it's a behind a paywall. You, uh, it's much harder to be able to uh, fetch, uh, to be able to fetch feedback from the, us from the users uh, because you don't have many of them to begin with. Whereas with open source, you have much more inputs that allow us, to the maintainers, to make, to make better choices. I guess it also pretty much depends on the product, right? I mean, you have like a crazy, crazy techie topic, right? Um, I mean, it's the, the the topic is is so nerdy. Um, if you if you see it uh, in the first place, it 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 has to be open source from my perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and there is another trend in uh, infrastructure software, and you know we're seeing this trend with uh, containers and Docker and Kubernetes. The world in twenty thirteen entered a new market transition. And this market transition was the world of containers and Kubernetes. And everything that has been driving this new transition has been open source from the bottom up. It's a bottom up transformation from the developers. You know, the emergence of open source communities like CNCF provide a self-service way for anybody really to go and take their software they want to use in production, deploy it, run it, you know, and if, if they like it, keep using it and so on. So open source has been the main driver for this revolution. I don't think it's possible to build infrastructure software at the level of Kong, what Kong does, in a closed source way anymore from scratch. Uh, the expectation is that you are not going to be deploying a black box in production when it comes to the infrastructure layer. And therefore, it must be open source. Because if it's not open source, it's a black box. Something breaks and you're stuck. You don't know how to expand it. You don't know how to fix it. You have no control over it on, on what essentially is going to be powering the business. Because when we power connections, it means we're powering applications, which means we're powering the business. And we cannot have a black box at the core of our business. And that's why open source is so successful. Okay, that pretty much makes sense. I guess that every of my listener CTOs out there knows this challenge. Traditional content management systems where front-end and back-end are tightly coupled make it difficult to reuse content in different digital channels. The next generation of headless CMS is much more flexible for developers but comes with strong constraints for editors. The goal of Storyblock is building the world's first headless CMS that works for both developers and business users. Storyblock offers a combination of visual editing tools and highly customizable content blocks. This is built on modern headless architecture that gives developers the flexibility to build fast and reliable digital platforms. The big benefit of headless CMSs is that content can be streamed to any platform via API without having to manage the content multiple times. For example, customers 
course, use Storyblock for their websites, online stores, apps, or send the same content to Twitter, WeChat, or to Alexa Skills. Storyblock is now used by over 50,000 developers, product owners, and managers in over 80,000 projects in 130 countries. Customers include Adidas, Marley Spoon, Deliveroo, and many, many more. If you want to know more, please visit storyblock.com slash OMR. That's storyblock.com slash OMR. I have a bit of a provocative topic I want to ask you or, or um, discuss with you. Um, I mean, you're, you're a company that is pretty much interested in um, the world becoming API-driven and also the world uh, becoming microservice-driven. Um, and I think the term monolith is always always has a very negative touch, right? Um, do, do you think like a microservice um, is required for any size of a product? Uh, do you, do, would, you, would you start with microservices no matter what kind of a product you're building? Or what do you think is a good, good indication and, and level to be at to, to, to spin up spin off uh, things at, as microservices? Well, it depends on what is the amount of scale that we expect from the product. So if you're trying to validate a product market fit with something that's new and we don't know if it's going to work, building it in microservices first, it's probably the wrong way to build it. Uh, we want to build it in a monolith because it allows us in the early stages to iterate quite quickly. But if the product gets any serious traction and adoption, we know that monolithic applications are just going to bring us so far because you know eventually they grow into, into this big, big bunch of code that's very hard to refactor. It's very hard to hire people on top of it. It's very hard to deploy because there is just a lot going on. And so at that point, decoupling our monolith into microservices becomes a great strategy because we can also decouple how we ship software. You know, we don't have to ship it all at once. We can update different parts of the microservices at different times and, and ship that way. So if we're trying to validate a product market fit and we are unsure of the adoption of the product, monoliths all the way. As soon as uh, we expect some sort of uh, traction and adoption and we need and you know we need to accelerate, then monoliths sooner than later are going to become a bottleneck. And that's when we move to microservices. But I'm a big believer of a pragmatic transition to microservices. What do you think about companies like Shopify? Uh, they just run on a monolith and uh, do that very successfully. Do you think they should split up in microservices? Would it, would it be more efficient for a company of that size? So with enough team coordination and understanding on how software is being built, of course, companies can be successful with monolithic applications. It's just much harder to do because you have to have the right structure in place to be able to do that. Whereas microservices also, they fix some problems, but they also introduce new challenges. And the new challenges they introduce are significant, you know, because we're now having network in between every single function that we execute. So I don't want anybody to think that there is a perfect solution out there. It all is a balancing act between what we have today, where we want to go, and what kind of organization is able to support that type of growth. Shopify was able to provide a, a good process in place that so far made them successful with, with their monolith. Um, but for many other companies, that was a death sentence. 
So for every Shopify, there are 10 companies where that didn't work, right? And this is why the industry is, is um, looking at microservices as a de facto way of building software at scale. It is just less riskier than uh, having a monolith uh, going on forever. Um, but, you know, even the size of the microservices, you know, it, it, who cares? I'm a very pragmatic person. I think that we have to refactor our software whenever we know that there is a problem in the way that software is being built or it's being scaled. And if we have a large microservice that is not giving us any problems, keep it there and only decapulate in smaller parts if it becomes a problem down the road. But it doesn't have to be all at once too soon. Microservices is not a transaction. We don't have a monolith and then the next day we have microservices. Microservices is a journey. It takes time to build a microservice-oriented architecture. It takes time to build expertise on the software that we need in order to run a successful microservices architecture. The observability layer, the connectivity layer, the security layer, and, and the CI, CD, and so on and so forth. It's a journey, right? It's not a, a silver bullet. Uh, it takes time. And with time, the teams are going to bet, get better and better over time, right? But it's, a, it's not something that just happens overnight. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, I'd want to like still tackle a few technical topics. As I saw, um, for example, on GitHub that um, your product is purely written in Lua. Why, why is that? Well, so the product is written in a series of languages, including uh, Lua, but also C, right? Uh, and the service mesh is built in Golang. So if you talk about the gateway, uh, we decided to build Lua because Lua was, um, and still is, a very lightweight language that works very well under extreme conditions. As a matter of fact, you may be familiar with a company called Cloudflare. You know, they provide uh, CDN services all over the world, uh, and their underlying technology is also built on the same stack, which is Lua. Lua, it's a lightweight language. It's a fast language. And that allow, allowed us to create a very performant API gateway technology. and and I think that was the right choice. Now, Lua is what we built the gateway with. But if developers want to build extensions on top of our uh, product, they can use other languages like JavaScript, like Golang, uh, like Python. So we've, we've built bindings for different languages in such a way that if anybody wants to create a plugin on Kong Gateway, they don't have to use Lua. There is many other options on top of Lua. And uh, your stack is partly based on Nginx as well, right? Who, which also um, is, is using Lua a lot. Is that true? Yeah, so we, we use a combination of Nginx and Envoy proxy, depending on what, what is the use case that we're trying to address. So with um, Kong, well, Kong was born before Envoy was even a public open source project. So uh, Kong uh, uh, was, was born on top of what I think it's a very good edge technology, um, Nginx, solid, reliable. Uh, you can throw everything at it and it just works. And then uh, we also contribute to Envoy Proxy when it comes to the uh, ingress efforts and service mesh efforts that we're doing in the context of Kuma and service mesh. So as a matter of fact, Kong contributes to both Nginx and Envoy. I think we are the only open source player that heavily contributes to essentially the two most popular proxy technologies, proxy runtimes in the world. Uh, and we really use and adopt the both of them. Thanks a lot. And um, if you could now give me three hints of what you would do if you would start with a very fresh API project um, as, as a CTO, 
what would be your 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 recommendations um, of, of of maybe like a good boilerplate technology uh, apart from using Kong, obviously, <laughs> which would be your recommendation, <laughs> I guess. What what else would you would you recommend um, of of where to look and maybe which which direction to take? Um, would you start with GraphQL? Would you what what would be your your recommendations? Well, first and foremost, uh, I would recommend everybody thinking of building an API to start from the interface, not from the implementation. You know, the API is as useful as the interface, you know, the requests and responses that we want uh, others to consume. And, and the implementation happens after we know what the API spec, the interface is going to look like. So let's start from the interface top down, right? And then once we have that, we have to determine how that API is going to be consumed. If that API is going to be consumed heavily by mobile applications, of course, GraphQL, it's a great option. You see, GraphQL allow us to create flexible queries uh, against an API endpoint in such a way that we don't have to make multiple requests from the mobile app to the API. Therefore, we save in performance and we save in bandwidth because you know, we can make one request and get what we need instead of having to make 50 requests and then consuming you know, traffic and bandwidth. So if the primary use case is a mobile use case, to use GraphQL, of course. If the use case is an internal use case, you know, things like gRPC or you know, RPC-based protocols in addition to HTTP are also very viable products, uh, very viable alternatives. Um, if we want to propagate state in an eventual consistent way, service-to-service -service requests are not always great because you know service-to-service -service requests eventually are going to fail. At one point, we're going to have in a situation where the service-to-service -service request, for whatever reason, fails. With events, instead, we can keep um, our, we can leverage a log collector to keep the state, the changes of state across our infrastructure, even if the connectivity were to drop. Because whenever it picks up again, we can, the subscriber is going to receive the event at that time. And event-based microservices are great if we want to move state and change the state of our services around the bar, around the around the infrastructure. So you know um, the 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 planning part of APIs, like anything that we're building, it is the most important part. Okay, um, and I guess if you just start with event sourcing, even if you don't need it, um, you might have. Uh, Uh, yeah, uh, decided to do, do a little more and invest a little more uh, than you would typically do, right? Yeah. Because it's quite complex. It, 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 you know, but there is a software that now makes that easier and much easier. Um, and and I think it's getting more accessible to, to everybody. You know, events uh, can be quite complex. It is right. But, but we now have lots of tooling built around that that allows us to build very reliable event-based architectures at this point. And either way, and, you know, and for some use cases, we want to have uh, transparent translation from uh, synchronous service-to-service -service requests to events, and we may want to leverage a gateway technology to do that for us. So this is something that the teams don't even have to build if they want to do it, right? So there is lots of tooling around that we can leverage. Thanks a lot. Talking of tooling and tools, um, do you ha actually have a software you recently discovered you absolutely love and uh, annoy all your friends with? <laughs> you know, I'm I'm actually quite traditional uh, when it comes to when it comes to the software I use. Uh, but but you know, I'm I'm looking at you know something that I've been using a lot 
is a Prometheus, for example, for collecting metrics. I think it's a great technology. Uh, in the past, I used you know Splunk or Elastic and Kibana, but you know the Prometheus and Grafana stack are are actually quite impressive. Uh, they also you know provide traces and stuff like that. So that has been something that that's quite impressive. Um, but you know for the for the most part for the most part you know. I, you know, my, my role has changed a lot um, in the past few years. So uh, I am not in in the in the running the system era of Kong anymore. Um, and, and but you know what I'm seeing from my teams is that Prometheus and Grafana certainly have been great tools for our observability. So does that feel good or bad uh, to not being responsible to run it anymore? It, it gives a different perspective on the business, right? Um, sometimes when you are deep into the code, uh, that's great. You know, I've been deep into the code for so many years and I still contribute, but not as much as I used to do in the past. You know, you're very in touch with uh, the product, uh, but it also prevents you from looking at the big picture sometimes. You know, you have to take a step back, get out of the code so that you can see what other areas of opportunity you can explore. And, and right now, you know, I have the, a better schedule to be able to do that, to talk to our customers, talk to our users, determine areas of opportunity, determine what other pain points they're experiencing in such a way that they can then refer this feedback to the engineering teams that they can go ahead and build a solution, right? I think there is value, there is value in both. It's not always one thing that makes a company successful. So you, in a way, transferred your, your own role from being a maybe very technical CTO person to a CTPO person or? My role has changed to be uh, much more architectural in such a way that I look at how things should be working together from an architectural standpoint and how they should be built from an architectural standpoint, less so from an implementation standpoint, because I really do trust my teams. We have a very strong engineering team that can certainly make better choices than I do when it comes to the underlying technology. And by the way, this is an important step of every startup and every company really, to be able at one point to level up and, and being able to trust others to, to do a great job, even without the founders originally being there in every decision-making. Otherwise the company doesn't scale. Thanks a lot. I still have a tricky closing question for you, Marco. Go um, for it. Very nice talking to you. <laughs> so, um, I actually found a, a hidden Easter egg in the early in an early version of Kong, um, and it is actually a, a routing hack uh, you implemented back then in the like central router or HTTP router of Kong, um, and it actually is labeled slash time machine, and you can uh, put it in a year. And it will actually make you travel in time uh, back to the year you, you defined. Um, pretty nice thing. Uh, tried it a lot uh, today. And uh, I now, now hit slash time machine 2011. Um, and we go back in time uh, to the year when you came up with Meshape. Um, and we can now ob observe yourself for a while um, and uh, see what uh, young Marco is doing back then. Um, I think you did like pretty much of coding day and night. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper yeah. something into young Marco's ears. What, what would it be? It would be that uh, API marketplace, it's too early. It's too early for that. Focus on the infrastructure layer, which is eventually what we did. I would, I would ask myself to open source. I would tell myself to open source Kong maybe a year, a year and a half earlier. Um, and that would have changed a lot or? 
Yeah. You know, it's very hard to it's very hard to say, right? Because at the end of the day, we are here today speaking, me and you, because we did something right in the past. And 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 that and those decisions led us here. You know, I believe that we could have launched Kong a year earlier and it would have been fine. Uh, but who knows? Maybe that would have been the wrong time. And but I feel like having it, you know, launching it a year earlier, perhaps uh, you know. I think the market was waiting for something like Kong 12 months earlier than Kong then, you know, when Kong open sourced it. And that's my belief, but you know, I may be wrong in this assessment. And so if I go back in time and I tell myself to release it a year earlier, who knows, maybe two years later, I'll burn out because it was a year too much. Maybe, maybe, maybe. <laughs> so uh, thanks a lot, Marco. <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> maybe <laughs> not. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Marco, for the uh, nice discussion. And I, Like my fingers are crossed that you you're gonna be the first API gate day where that actually IPO'd. <laughs> Let's see if that is happening at a certain time. Uh, so yeah, thanks a lot, Marco. Enjoy your day and hope to talk thank to you. you soon. Bye bye. Yes, thank you. Likewise. Bye bye.